I want to start again with chapter one. Uh, I mean, chapter, verse one of chapter five. We got into that last week, but start there again. A reminder of just a couple of things. Chapters five and six of Galatians are really about what the justified life looks like. The um, the Judaizers had. No, I'm, I'm putting words in their mouth, but this, this certainly was part of their argument. The Judaizers would say, for a more complete salvation and justification, you need to keep the law. And then they would say, for a more, for a more complete and fulfilled sanctification, you need the law. Because, now, this is a very important point, the law was necessary to check sin. The law was necessary to check sin because they said, if you don't have the law, this is their, their argument, if you don't have the law, then you do not know how to follow God. In other words, adding to the theme, to have a more fulfilled and rigorous sanctification, you need the law. And Paul rejects that. Paul will argue that justification by faith leads to sanctification by faith, where your trust and walk with the Lord and the Holy Spirit enables you to live the life that God's calling you to live as you are transformed into the image of his son. And that's why in this chapter, you'll see it right away in verse 5, he's going to bring up the Holy Spirit. Just a reminder, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who is the sign of the new covenant, the Holy Spirit is the energizing power and center of the new covenant. And so Paul is going to make much of this. To I think he absolutely destroys the argument that the Judaizers must have been making. So this, this emphasis on the practical applications of justification by faith is powerful. And it, it the only corresponding passage to this would be like Romans 8 or Ephesians chapters 5 and 6 as well. So as we, we start this last week, let me repeat this again. For freedom, I'm in verse 1 of chapter 5, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, firm therefore, do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Let's our work our way backward. When he speaks of the yoke of slavery, what would he mean by that? The yoke of slavery to what? I mean, to to speak of slavery means you're in, in bondage to something. You're something or someone has you in bondage. You're not really free. Now, in the ancient world, you know, slavery was very much a part of the ancient world. He's not talking about menial servant slavery that was part of the Roman Empire. He's talking about slavery to the law, bondage to the law bondage to man-made systems that tell you you must earn and perform for God to find you acceptable. And, of course, that the whole Paul is just adamant that has nothing to do with the gospel. So the yoke of slavery would be the slavery to the law, man-made legalistic systems that, that order you, command you to perform, or God won't accept you. Don't submit to that. And the word submit, it's a verb there, but you can make it a noun. Submission is coming under its authority, where you are submitting to its authority. Don't let that happen. Stand firm in what? Your liberty, your freedom. 
Um, every, every day in my inbox in the morning, I get a little thing from Schwindel. And right now, uh, in those little inboxes, the little excerpts from his marvelous book, The Grace Awakening. And I'll just, if you have never read that book, I really encourage you to read it. It is the best book that I have ever come across that really speaks to quite powerfully and practically the doctrine of grace and helps us to, to stay away from any kind of legalistic system. And Swindoll, this is this passage that I just read, verse one, is one of Swindoll's favorite verses. He keeps repeating it over and over and over again. Stand fast in your liberty. Stand firm in your liberty. You are free in Christ. And this morning, it was really, it was really interesting. This morning, he talked. He, he speaks of them as grace killers. What are the things in our life that are the grace killers that kill the power of grace in our lives? And among other things, he says, when when someone says something to you. It could be a pastor, it could be a friend, it could be a teacher or whatever. But someone, in effect, is saying to you, you must do this in order to walk closely to the Lord. You must do this in order to have an, an intimate fellowship with God. And it doesn't have anything to do with the scriptures. They're not quoting a Bible verse. They're saying, if you really want to walk closely with Jesus, you should never go to a movie. That's, I grew up in that culture. If you want to walk closely to Jesus, if you have playing cards in your house, get rid of those playing cards. Now, I'm using examples in the 1950s when I was growing up. But, and, but he, he, it's not that those things aren't important. You have to make decisions about how you're going to deal with those things. Like entertainment choices, leisure time choices. You have to make those decisions. But for me to say to you, Bill, if you have playing cards in your house, I want you to go home right now and destroy them all. That's God's will for your life. Uh, where's that in the Bible? Is that God speaking or is that Jim Ekman speaking? Am I binding you to Jim Ekman's commands or God's commands? And so what Swindoll says is we have to be very careful that we separate the clarity of what God's word is declaring and the need for you and me to have wisdom in the choices we make in these non-moral areas of life. And, and when I say non-moral, what I mean and what Swindoll means by that is the things to which God has not specifically spoken. Now, that doesn't mean we don't, we don't carefully consider all of those there. Entertainment choices today are extremely important. But it's really hard to find anything in the Bible that says anything about a smartphone. Or a DVD player. It doesn't talk about those things, but it has a lot of principles and wisdom. Be very careful. But if don't let me bind your conscience on those things. You make up the decision. So I'm using this example. So what he, that's what he's talking about. Jesus has set us free from bondage to the law. He has set us free from, I'm trying to drive this home in a broad different ways. Jesus has set us free from a performance-based religion to be acceptable to the Lord. Because if Jesus truly paid it all, whose death, burial, resurrection, and his ascension, and the coming of the Holy Spirit, all the work is done from here on out, 
we walk with the Lord in grace by faith as we develop those patterns and strategies for living for him in these non-moral areas of life. And so it's, and, and Swindoll is so right. That's why I love that book. He's so, it is so freeing to approach life with a perspective of grace, not legalism. Because you always, you always, have, I, that's, I grew up with that and I rebelled against that for a while. I didn't want anything to do with it. You always say, I haven't done enough. I haven't been good enough. And as a little boy, that's how I thought. I haven't been good enough. I was a typical boy. And, and yet grace is telling you it isn't about you doing good enough. Jesus is doing now, now, respond to him in loving obedience. You walk with him in love and intimacy, not because he had a sword of Damocles hanging over your head, he's going to smack you. There's a difference there in how you, the mindset you have in your walk with the Lord. So this is all that Paul is talking about. Now, of course, the context of, of when he wrote this in A.D. 49, the context of the Judaizers who are trying to put the yoke of legalistic slavery on the, the early church, the early Christians, he just dump it on. So Paul decides to choose an example. And we, we got into this last week. We didn't get, get it finished at all. And the example he chooses is, of course, circumcision. Look, Paul says. I say to you that if you accept circumcision, okay, now remember, that's the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. He is saying, you might, you, he's speaking to Gentiles. He's speaking to Greco-Roman people in Galatia. These, these, these Judaizers come in. Okay, you got you Greco-Roman people. The first thing we want to talk to you about, have you circumcised your boys? Are you circumcised? You know, a 65-year-old person in Galatia one of the towns of Galatia, who is a Gentile. They've not been circumcised. Typically in the Greco-Roman world, the Greco-Roman did not circumcise. Egypt did, the Philistines did, but typically Greco-Roman did the people. So, I mean, the first thing the Jews go, Ed, are you circumcised? No, you've got to be circumcised. If you're not circumcised, you cannot be saved, use our language, and you can never be sanctified. So the first step on your walk with God is you got to be circumcised. What? I mean, that, the, that, that's how they were responding. But Paul is saying, okay, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Because remember what he's saying, what Paul is saying, is he's answering these Judaizers who are saying, you want a more complete salvation? Okay, you've accepted this stuff about Jesus that Paul would teach. But he's leaving stuff out. His gospel is too, too liberal. Uh, that is maybe the best way to put it in 2023. It's too, it, it's, it's too free, and it's going to lead, if I use the word licentious, do you know what I mean by that? It's going to lead to licentious living, where you do whatever you want. Or another big theological term, it's going to, use, it's, it's going to lead to the, to the kind of, 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 of Christianity, the kind of, of religion that the law has absolutely nothing to do. You just do whatever you want, you're okay. No. You start your walk with God by being circumcised. And Paul says, if that's true, then Jesus isn't really of any advantage to you. Jesus didn't talk about that. 
And what Paul is beginning to do, now this is really important for the language he's going to use. He is comparing two systems of salvation, of justification and sanctification. The system of by grace through faith and the system of by faith plus the law. He's talking about two systems here. He's comparing and contrasting the two. He's not talking about two people, one saved, the other not saved. That's not what he's talking about. Do you understand the difference? You understand what I mean? He's not talking about, Joe, you're saved because you are keeping the law. Fred, you're not because you're not keeping the law. That's not what he's talking. He's not talking about two individuals. He's talking about two systems. The system that Paul's teaching by grace through faith plus nothing. And what the Judaizers are teaching, this faith stuff of Paul plus the law, and you've got to keep it. And so Paul says, okay, let's talk about circumcision, which is so important to these guys. If you believe that circumcision is necessary for salvation, then Christ is of no value to you. You are in effect saying that Jesus is not necessary for salvation. If you keep everything perfectly, you can be saved. I'm using language you use today. And Paul, okay, I'm getting warm, so. Rather than suffer for Jesus, I'm going to take my jacket off. <laughs> that was a terrible thing to say. But, you know, <laughs> verse 3, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. So he's made two comments. If you really believe that circumcision is necessary for more complete salvation, more complete sanctification, then Christ is really not much of an advantage to you. You're still having to work for this. It's all up to you. And secondly, if you really believe this, if you really believe what the Judaizers are teaching, or more, more specifically, if the Judaizers will believe this, You've got to understand the nature of the law. It's an organic whole. You can't pick and choose. If you become obligated to keeping the law via circumcision, then you must keep the whole law. That's what he means, the ESV is translated, to keep the whole law. This is an integrated, unified system. In James and when we study the epistle of James in a little bit, we will see exactly the same point. He makes precisely that point. You cannot pick and choose. If you are going to choose to uh, follow a procedure that you must keep the law, have more complete salvation, more complete sanctification, you got to keep the whole thing. And that's part of what the Old Testament argues. All right, so two things. If, if you really believe that, then, then Christ really wasn't necessary. Because you can work your way to salvation. Number two, if you choose to keep circumcision as a part of your obligation, the whole thing's unified. You cannot pick and choose. So verse four, if this is what you mean, then you are severed from Christ. Some translations have, I think NIV has alienated from Christ. Some have you are you are you are, are are inoperative in your relationship. That's more of a of an amplified version. The Greek word is katargeo. I know that doesn't mean anything to you particularly, 
but it's talking about a relationship. It's talking about the, again, comparing these systems. So here you are, you're in Christ. You have come into that sphere of blessing by putting your faith in him. Now, the Judaizers have been saying that's not enough. This little sphere of being in Christ isn't enough. You need to bring circumcision into this circle. You need to bring keeping the Sabbath into this circle. You need to observe in the feast days. All of you put this in the circle. What Paul is saying in Katergeo means you are rendering inoperative the power of Christ in your life. Again, he's comparing two systems, not the state of two individuals. If you really believe that, you're adding something. You're in that sphere of blessing. You're in Christ Jesus. And the Jesus, that's not enough. You don't bring circumcision, Sabbath, kosher food, etc. all that into this circle. Paul says you do that. You're rendering an operative the power of Jesus through the Holy Spirit in your life. King James puts it this way. Jesus has become of no effect unto you. His power and his enabling grace will not have much effect on you because you are adding to his sufficiency something you have to do. Again, comparing the two systems. So you can see, if you're following me, and I hope you are, if you're following me, Paul is not talking about the loss of salvation. He's talking about the absolute bankruptcy of a system that looks at salvation as faith plus what you have to do, works. Plus, it's faith in Jesus plus this for you to really be saved. It's faith plus this in order for you to be more sanctified. And Paul says, if that's really how you look at it, you are rendering the power of Jesus in your life inoperative because you're putting it all on your own shoulders. And everything about the state of grace in your life is dependent on you. Is it? Please say no. It's not dependent on you. It's dependent on the Lord Jesus Christ through the power of his Holy Spirit that you begin to learn to yield to in faith. I hope you're seeing the difference. This is, I've been a minister a long time. And the one thing I've seen, again, especially because I work so much with young adult men, especially with young adult men, they have no understanding of God's grace. They really don't. They have no understanding of its power. They have no understanding of what it really means to live a life of grace. Bill, you're ready to form a question there. Well, in the book, does he bring up why Christians seem to go out of their way to bring grace killers in their life? The reason I bring that up, my granddaughter works at the Olive Garden. So on Sunday, they'll normally do 800 meals. I mean, 600 meals. This last Sunday, Mother's Day, everybody's got to honor Mother's Day. They did 1,000. Wow. Now, Good. there were no people in there having any fun. So all the people that went there after church, yeah, the wait was longer, <laughs> the service was slower, and nobody was having it. But we purposely put ourselves in situations 
as foil-art race. We're mm. people that don't go out on Sunday. Yeah, that's wise. Because usually it's crowded and it's not yeah. fun. But mm. there's other things we've seen purposely do that we know is going to be a problem. You know, I, I there is a complex theological answer to your question. But I think there's a, no, and I, I didn't mean that in any demeaning way, Bill. But there's, I think, a simple answer. The simple answer is we still think we have to do more. We have to earn it. We we have to. There's just there's the stuff we have to do for the Lord to really be pleased with us. You have to take mom out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have to do this, and and um. And it's it's my, one of my favorite. I I'll, I will never. This is really it was an amazing thing for me and Peggy. Uh, I I was, was doing a, a, a fourteen day almost it was twelve day actually a series at a conference in Ecuador for uh, what at that time was was uh, GMU, but anyway it's now Avant. But it was it was the kind of opportunity that I could take my my wife and my kids with me. That the kids were, Jonathan was uh, nine and Joanna no Jonathan was eight and, and Joanna would have been a little over two. And so um, it was really a fantastic experience for the kids. We were among the Quechua Indians up in the mountains. We were in Quito, and then we were down in the jungle where the conference was being held. And. Both my son and me really love peanut butter. I, I you know, I, I don't eat much of it anymore, but I, I, all my life I've loved peanut butter and Reese's peanut butter cups and all that kind of stuff. But anyway, on this mission station, oh, we don't eat peanut butter here. Yeah. And I, I just remember that, and I said, I said to my my friend who had been a former student of mine, "What? Why? Well, we they don't." They'd want to create a division with the Ecuadorian people who are not familiar with peanut butter, and we don't want to offend them. Now, that I, that's totally understandable. But at the same time, binding binding this as a legalistic principle for every Christian: Christians do not eat peanut butter. And I thought, and then my daughter. This was also very interesting. I guess I'll say this. Now, my daughter was approaching three years old, and so she had a bathing suit, but her bathing suit was, you know, bottom, and it's a little thing right across here. And three of the missionaries came up and said to Peggy how offended they were that our daughter was wearing a bathing suit. (laughs) Now, I mean, here's poor Joanna, you know, and Peggy, and I think, okay, what do we do? So... Every time Joanna went out to, to go to the, it was kind of like a little uh, sort of mini lake there. It wrapped her in a towel and the towel got soaked because we didn't want to offend. But th- that kind of thing is instead of enjoying the freedom of a nearly three-year-old being able to wear a bathing suit in an extremely hot, humid climate, we felt guilty. We felt restrained and thought, okay, we will do that because we are their guests. A grace killer is someone who's saying to you, 
I know better than you how you should live your life. And instead of you enjoying the freedom you have in Christ to make the wise decisions in these non-moral areas of life, I'm going to tell you how you are to live it. And the one thing that is a part of this is, it's really important that you adhere to this. Because if you don't adhere to this, God is going to be displeased with you. And, and God is going to hold back things from you. And so those grace killers are those people who come in to say, Christians do not go to movies. Christians do not watch television. Christians do not eat peanut butter. Christians do not have their three-year-old daughters wear little two-piece bathing suits. Okay? Now, a better way, a better way to frame that would be, I don't know much about these people. As I'm taking the gospel message into a culture with which I'm not familiar, I want to understand where that culture is. And I will do what I think is wise to reach that culture. It has nothing to do with my relationship with the Lord. It has everything to do with my relationship with them. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9. To the Jew, I'm a Jew. I want to under, he was, so he knew that. But everything that's about Judaism, I want to know it. And I will observe it. Not because it affects my relationship with the Lord. That's settled. It affects my relationship with them. To the Greek, I'm a Greek. And he then goes on to, I will become all things to all people that I might win some. See, he has the right perspective. It has nothing to do with my relationship with God. It has everything to do with my relationship with these people. My relationship with God is settled. There's nothing I can do more or less that's going to cause God to stop loving me the way he loves me now. My relationship with him is not based. Let me put it in way. His love for me and his intimacy with me is not based on me. It's based on what his son did for me. I appropriate that by faith. Now, I begin to learn what it means to walk in loving obedience to him. And there I go to the word of God. But I've also learned that in these non-moral areas, I need to be wise. I need to seek out what, what affects my life in these non-moral areas of life. What, what, how, do I make, how do I make entertainment decisions? How, how do I make the decisions about leisure time? Does it mean I can do whatever I want? Well, at one level, yes, but you know, you have to be very wise in your choice of these non-moral areas. And that then becomes not, oh, if I do this, God's going to stop loving me. That's, I had guys say that to me. They know the Lord. They have a relationship with the Lord. I know that if I do this, God's not going to love me much anymore. Because, and I would say, no, that's not, that's not the right. It doesn't mean you don't have to make wise decisions in this area. But don't look at it as the effect of whether God's going to fall in and out of love with you because of what you're doing. There's nothing you can do that's going to cause God to love you more or less than he does right now. This is what Paul is trying to These two systems of how you approach your relationship with God. If you allow, again, use my analogy, if you allow all of these extra things to come into the sphere of blessing of being in Christ, you are rendering the power of Jesus inoperative in your life because you keep adding things that you must do 
instead of what he has already done and will continue to do for you through his spirit. Am I making sense? I'm trying, I'm really elaborating on this. But this, I'm telling you, there are just huge numbers of grace killers out there that make the Christian life miserable instead of the Christian life an enjoyment, an adventure, and a journey with the living God. I've heard, you've heard me say this before, but I studied under a guy who said, so many Christians are going to get to heaven, and Jesus is going to look them in the eye and say, I really wanted you to enjoy it more. <laughs> I really did. All right. Now, look at verse 5. Why have I rendered inoperative the power of Jesus in my life if I add all this stuff into the circle of blessing? You could translate that because. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. So did you see what Paul is doing here? He's getting the Galatians to shift their thinking from this present bondage stuff to the legalistic grace killers to get their focus back on Jesus. But he adds the spirit because the energizing power in the sphere of blessing is the Holy Spirit. Because through the spirit, by faith, you're future-oriented. We eagerly await, and that, that little phrase, eagerly await, is used seven times in the New Testament. And every time it's used in the New Testament, it's one word, but it's translated eagerly await. It always focuses on the return of Jesus. So it's, it's like Titus 2.13, the blessed hope. We eagerly await. The phrase is, is one word. It's almost a tiptoe expectation and excitement for the hope of righteousness. Now, that's really interesting. That is really interesting that Paul does it this way. So he says, first of all, through, by means of the Spirit, by faith, by our faith in the Lord, but by the Spirit, we ourselves eagerly await, tiptoe expectation. We're so excited for the hope of righteousness. He said, wait a minute. I thought I was righteous. That's what justification is. I've been declared righteous. And sanctification is the process where it's being conformed into the image of Jesus. He's talking about glorification. The hope of the last stage of righteousness. The final stage of salvation. What's, what's that? When we receive our resurrected bodies. So it, it's, it's this fantastic reality of the Christian life. What keeps us going? What energizes us? What, what enables us to avoid these grace killers? Because our focus is on We eagerly await seven times in the New Testament referring to the coming of Christ for that hope, future word, of what? The final stage of righteousness. I am being transformed into the image of Christ. When he returns from me, I will receive my resurrected, glorified body. The final aspect, the final stage of forensic justification. So you see, because we're in that 
circle of blessing. And we're not allowing all this junk to come into that circle that we're adding. We must do this. We must do this. No, no, no. Our, our energizing center is through the power of the Holy Spirit because we put our faith in Christ. We're, we're future-oriented people. We're focusing on that hope of the final stage of forensic justification, the glorification of our bodies when we receive the resurrected body. That's what neutralizes the grace killers. Your hope in Jesus. You're in that sphere of blessing. Part of that sphere of blessing is hope. Of the promise that Jesus made to us that we're going to receive the resurrected, glorified body. And he adds, for in Christ Jesus, I'm in verse 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Now remember, Paul's a Jew. These Judaizers are Jews. And what did he just say? In Christ Jesus, circumcision is your own. Yeah, now I'm telling you, that's taking a very, very sharp pin and sticking it in the bubble of the Judaizers' view of righteousness. As it bursting in. In that sphere of blessing, in Christ Jesus, 242 times in the New Testament, circumcision, uncircumcision. Circumcision is absolutely irrelevant. What is relevant? Faith, working through love. Faith demonstrated by a lifestyle of love. Now here He's laying on the table a crucial element of the process of sanctification. A crucial element of the, pro- of the process of sanctification that keeps us from licentious living. Because the Judaizers are saying, you need the law. You need the law to set the boundaries. You don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, and stick to it. Even in the... Non-warriors of life, let me tell you how to live your life. Let me tell you what to do. Paul says, you know, the lifestyle of love is the boundary God sets because he empowers us to love as Jesus loved us. One of the key fruit of the Spirit, love, the first one of the fruit, we'll see this coming up in this chapter, verse 22. Because listen, I'm in the process of sanctification. What's going to keep me from trying to control, manipulate, and exploit Joe? Where I impose upon him all my legalistic, legalistic structures and make him. Because a lifestyle of faith working through love means I'm going to love him. As I love myself. That's in Leviticus. That's part of the law. But I'm going to love him because Christ first loved me. And the, 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 this is the key operative word throughout the uh, little epistle of First John. I will love him as Christ loved me. So I won't exploit him. I won't treat him as an object. I will not be mean to him. I will not show him any anything that does not Keep him elevated as an image bearer of God whom Jesus Christ has saved. What will keep me 
from manipulating, controlling my wife. Love, I'm to love her as Christ loved the church. What will keep what would keep me from killing another human being in a premeditated because I love them as image bearers of God? And see Paul is introducing now, this is the key dynamic element of sanctification. The Holy Spirit gives you the energizing hope of the coming glorification. So if that's true, and the sphere of blessing of being in Christ is true, in that sphere, circumcision is irrelevant. What matters is faith. Faith in Jesus Christ for our salvation. Faith in the Heavenly Father through the Holy Spirit in the process of sanctification. Faith in God's going to keep all his promises to me, including the promise of new resurrected body. And I love him, therefore I will love others. Faith. Evidence and lifestyle of love. That's the power of sanctification. You don't need the legalistic strictures of the Judaizers. God's giving you all the resources you need. And he's going to elaborate on this now. In the next, uh, the next section, uh, 13 uh, and, and following. All right? Everybody online Okay. I'm trying to yes. Trying to process all this silence, but I'm thinking. So we've we have we've gone beyond the you've got to be this this good to get into heaven. The little bar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good. All right. Now, verse seven. Now he's back. He's come down from these powerful, elevating principles that Jesus taught and that Paul taught. And look around, nice back. You were running well. You as plural, you Galatians, were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? What does Paul mean you were running well? I mean, he's using a metaphor of a race. That's obvious, but what does he mean you were running well? What do you mean by that? Yeah, you guys were doing so well. The process of sanctification was was obvious in your life. You put your faith in Christ. You've been justified. You're running well. I, I, I think, I can't remember which paraphrase, but one of the paraphrases says, who cut you off and caused you to stumble? I love that. But who hindered you from obeying the truth? I'm not sure. I'm not sure the word hindered is necessarily the best way to translate that because it's a very strong word. Who hindered you? Who prevented you? Who cut you off from obeying the truth? The truth about what? The truth about Jesus, the truth about the Holy Spirit, the truth about the sphere of blessing called being in Christ. Who perverted all that? That's causing you to stumble in the race, but cut you off from obeying the truth about Jesus, about the Spirit, all the things I've just quickly summarized. Verse 8, ESV has translated it this way. This persuasion. This, this, this distortion of the truth, this persuasion is not 
from him who calls you. Who's the him who calls you? Jesus. This isn't from Jesus. That's a pretty dogmatic statement. And Paul, the Greek word is kaleo, translated calls. That's one of Paul's favorite words for salvation. Because, it, again, the railroad tracks, it focuses on the divine sovereignty side of the railroad track. God called you to salvation. You accepted the call through faith. What these guys are teaching you did not come from Jesus. Can you be any more adamant, any more dogmatic than that? And let's, let's paraphrase this. These Judaizers are not speaking for Jesus. They are not speaking with any authority whatsoever. And then he quotes a proverb, a proverb that he uses in 1 Corinthians 5, 6 as well. Apparently a favorite proverb of his. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Oh, now we're men. Those online and the guys in the room. Do you know what leaven is? <laughs> I think you all do. Sin. Well, it's a metaphor it for is. sin. It is. You're right. Absolutely. Yeast. But you know, leaven, if you're baking, it's on leaven. Yeast. Spreads like wildfire. It goes very quickly in the loaf of, of dough or whatever. And so when he says a leaven, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. The danger, the danger is what these Judaizers are teaching is going to affect the entire gospel message. Everything is at stake here. The danger of what these Judaizers are teaching is the whole grace system is in jeopardy. If you accept even one of the teachings of the Judaizers. Because I'll say this about the 19th time today. In that little circle of blessing being in Christ. You're in there because you put your faith in Christ. And by grace through faith you're in there. You start bringing into that circle. The things you must do. To be saved or to be sanctified. You are bringing into jeopardy the entire grace system. For Paul, this is a big deal. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I, I, you know, another illustration, it would be, of course, what today is, is very well known as cancer. One little cancer cell can affect the entire body over time. It's just like saving one apple. One, one rotten apple, yep, yep. Exactly. So this isn't hard to understand, but when you flesh out the power of this, this proverb for Paul, everything's at stake here. It's by grace, through faith, plus nothing. That's the gospel. So Paul then writes, he's been, he's been dinging them pretty hard here. Now something positive. Verse 10. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine. Now that's not self-elevating. That's not pride. He's just saying, I, I have confidence in you guys. 
that you will understand what I'm saying. And the view that I'm presenting, which comes from Jesus, that you agree. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Now, because he uses the word, uh, the term the one, in this definite article, the one, he apparently has in mind an individual. The problem is we don't know who this is. We have no idea who he's talking about. So we'll, we'll just add the term I've been using so far in our study of this book, the Judaizers, the leader of the Judaizers in these little Galatian towns. The one who is troubling you will bear the penalty. Whoever he may be, he is accountable. And when he says bear the penalty, to, you know, to, to whom is this Judaizer leader accountable? Lord. It's almost like Paul saying, I have confidence that you're going to see this correctly because the Lord's going to take care of this, this one. This one's accountable. He's answerable to God. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Let's work our way back. Now, I, I, I'm fairly certain you all know what emasculate means. If you don't, I'll use another word, castrate. That's really what he's saying. I wish these Judaizers would castrate themselves. Man, that's a terrible thing to say. Why would he say it that way? Take away their power. Take away their power. Take away their influence. And the figure of speech, which is hyperbole, exact language of exaggeration, because they're preaching circumcision, he says, well, I just wish they'd go all the way. I mean, is that, you, you, honestly, that's what he's doing. The word picture he's painting. And you say, well, that's not very nice. But remember, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. For Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, the gospel is at stake here. And Paul says, the offense, he uses that phrase, uh, Jesus used that phrase, Paul uses it in, in his letters to the first Corinthians, to, to the Corinthians, the first Corinthians. The offense of the cross, the offense of the cross would be removed if you add to the cross human effort. You understand? That's what Paul said, the offense of the cross would be removed. Because you're adding to the cross human effort. And Paul says, you can't do that because that old, that old hymn of the, of the church, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. I don't need to do anything for my salvation except my put my faith in the one who did it all for me. Because, and this is, this is so central to the grace, the grace by faith, grace through faith gospel. If you add human effort into it, you have made the cross technically unnecessary, or at least you've reduced the power of the cross. And the Bible does not allow you to do that. So Paul, Paul is being absolutely categorical here. He's drawing the line in the sand, and he's insisting that the Galatians see it this way. 
He is not calling for compromise with the Judaizers. He's not calling for accommodation to the Judaizers. He's using absolute language here. This is not something you compromise on. It is either the Judaizers or it's Jesus. Which one are you going to choose? In effect. So it's it's strong language, but as when he started the, the, the book, it's way back in chapter one, these guys are representing a heteron, another gospel, gospel, total gospel of another kind. It has nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus. And he's again drawing the line in the sand, insisting that the Galatians see it this way. And I, I believe he's I believe he's very, very powerful in doing this. Paul's Paul is really He's really speaking of these Judaizers as heretics, as proponents of false doctrine. And you don't tolerate that in your churches. All right. And it took us a long time to work through these 12 verses. But any questions? Uh, Everybody with me on this? Okay. really points out the reason that God unilaterally Made the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. Yeah, absolutely. It's dependent on him. Totally dependent on him. Absolutely. All right. I got about five minutes. I think we can do 13, 14, and 15. Verse 13. He repeats verse 1. For you were called to freedom. Now, I don't have to explain this, do I? You were called to freedom. Freedom from the law. Freedom from any legalistic teaching that adds to the gospel. It's by grace through faith plus nothing. So to add any, again, I, I use this, I, this is my favorite way of trying to be in Christ is that sphere of blessing. And you have come into that sphere of blessing by putting your faith in Christ. You bring anything in that and add something to that, you have destroyed the power of what Christ has done. And that's freedom. Freedom from God. Freedom in the Bible has two dimensions to it. Freedom from and freedom to. Freedom from all of the grace killers that destroy the gospel by grace through faith plus nothing. But freedom to serve the Lord Jesus. Freedom from the sin that I was in bondage to, to now serve Jesus. Freedom from bondage to the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan, to now serve in the kingdom of his dear son, Colossians 1.13. So that freedom is a marvelous biblical word. I'm freedom from, free from, the bondage to legalism, to sin, to Satan, to the world, I'm free to serve Jesus. You've called to freedom, brothers. Only, oh no, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Now, he's, he hinted at this, as we mentioned earlier, in, in the first paragraph, 1 through 12. Now he's going to develop this. What prevents in this process of sanctification without the law, what prevents you from becoming an antinomian? Isn't that a great word? 
anti antinomian against the law. What prevents you? Because an antinomian is okay. I'm free. I can do anything I want. Jesus paid it all down. I can do anything I want. There were people in the first century who taught that. The Judaizers were saying you need the law to prevent antinomianism from resolving. You, you need the law to prevent licentious living from. Paul says, now look, in your freedom, in your freedom in Christ, notice what he says. Do not let this be an opportunity for the flesh. That's one of our three enemies, the world, Satan, and the flesh. I'm going to talk more about that because in the next paragraph, he really develops the idea of the flesh. But the flesh is that selfish, self-centered capacity to still sin and do what I want to do. And see, the Judaizers were saying, you, this is the way you are. You're naturally evil. If you don't have the law, how are you going to have the boundaries of life? Paul says, no, 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 you're missing the point. The freedom of Christ doesn't set you free to do whatever you want. The freedom in Christ sets you free to serve and love one another. Because what does he say? For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he quotes exactly the same thing Jesus quoted. In Matthew 22, verse 39, Luke 10, verses 25. He's quoting Leviticus 19, 18. When Jesus Christ was asked the question, What's the greatest commandment? The Pharisees tried to trap him into a debate that was going on. Jesus thought it's very simple. Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. Two quotes from the Old Testament. Paul's quoting the same thing Jesus quoted. The whole law is fulfilled. Key word, fulfilled. In one word, love. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the safeguard. That's the power. That is the energizing center of sanctification, which keeps you from licentious living, as I used that illustration with Joe a little bit ago. Because I now see people the way God sees people. And I will, I will exercise love toward them instead of exploiting, taking advantage of, manipulating, controlling, etc., other human beings. But Paul says, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. He's probably, in verse 15, he's probably commenting on what has been happening since the Judaizers have started their round of teaching in these various towns in Galatia. Because the teachings of the Judaizers divided the church. <laughs> the teachings of the Judaizers were splitting the churches. And those words, biting and devouring, can lead to consuming, can lead to, that's a, that's a, that's a word of destruction. So Paul is going to develop this now quite extensively in the rest of the section of the book this section of the book. But what is it that neutralizes the threat of licentious, abandoned living? Love one another. It's exactly the same thing Jesus said. It's the 
main thing precisely John says in the epistle of 1 John chapter 4. I like to think of love, loving one another, loving your neighbors yourself. I see that person the way God sees that person. I think I told you this a while back in the fitness center I went to. There was a big, big guy had his son was helping him get ready for football. There's a particular machine I use. The very first thing I do when I get into the gym in the morning, a lot of them. And he had told you, these are all ours. I said, well, can I have one? Nope, these are all ours. We'll let you know when we're done. Then that was such a challenge to my sanctification. <laughs> I'm not, I'm serious because, you know, it's five o'clock in the morning. I'm barely awake. And here's this guy saying that he's not going to share these machines. He's not going to let me use one of them. He and his son, and I, they're using them all. And they, when I, well, not one of them was there. He just had his towel stretched over. They were on another piece of paper. So, you know, for just a, I was so taken aback. I finally am awake. Okay. And I just said, okay. But inside of me, it was just seething. Oh, my goodness. And I honestly, I struggled with that for the rest of my time in the fitness center through mid-morning. And then when I call Peggy often, and I briefly say, she's, well, honey, the solution is very, very simple. Just see him the way Jesus sees him. <laughs> you ever get hit by the side of your head with your wife's two by four she brought me down to earth but it's just it's that's absolutely true you see somebody the way the lord sees him this guy needs to know the lord and i have no idea of anything about him but i tried uh, i in my own strength and then finally it hit me you have to love them the way the lord loves them because that's a few seconds in that man's life i have no idea what he's like i know he, Patience, understanding, wisdom, and self-control. I know none of you have ever been in a situation like that. It's an abstract idea to you. But they're the kind of things to see people the way God sees them and respond. So, I'm out of time. I've got to quit. Tomorrow what we'll do, I want to summarize something about 13-15. Then we're going to get into verse uh, 16 and following, which is one of the most important passages in the whole Bible. Because the Apostle Paul talks about the role of the Holy Spirit. And every day you and I wake up and we have to make a choice. Are we going to serve and depend on ourselves? Or are we going to serve and depend on the Spirit? And this will be the question I want to know. I want to answer. How do I know if I'm being controlled by the Holy Spirit? We will try to answer that question next week. Father, thank you for the Apostle Paul, for his tremendous insight under the inspiration of the Spirit in helping us to begin to understand our freedom in Christ. Begin to understand that in these non-moral areas of life, we have great freedom. We want to stay away from grace killers, but at the same time, we want to develop wisdom and understanding and discernment in how to make these wise choices. Not because it causes you to love us more or less. There's nothing we can do which will affect that. We're beginning to learn what it means to be in Christ Jesus, 
but also to bring nothing into that sphere of blessing at no human effort, no, no, no human standards into that. Our walk with you is a walk of faith. Our life with you is a life of faith. And one of the key elements that keeps us from licentious, abandoned living is love. Love for you and love for people. Help us to be men of faith, men of God, who are serious about our walk with you, who are learning dependence on you, not dependence on self, but to walk with you in loving obedience, to do what you're asking us to do because we love you, and we ask you to help us in this area. We're all growing in this area of life. So I commit these men to you, both those online here in the room. Watch over each one. So give us your enabling grace as we go into this day, the rest of this day. Help us to represent you well, we pray in your son's name. Amen. See you next week, guys.